Amen. Good to be with you guys here at Brigham City Campus today. We're starting this new series, as, as Eric mentioned. It's a great series to do in a small group. And, um, but I want you to think as we begin today, what is uh, something that you've seen that you can't explain? Have you seen some things that you can't explain? Like you see that light up in the sky at night that doesn't move like an airplane would move? You know, and you're, hmm, wonder about that. Or like, have you ever been at home alone, like, and you set something down here, and you go back to get it later, and you find out it's actually, it's, it's over here now? And there's nobody else. Your wife didn't move it. She's gone, you know. There's nobody around right now. So how did that happen? Well, for seven weeks, we're going to talk about some things that are hard to explain, the Bible calls them miracles, and um, especially we're going to look at uh, the miracles of Jesus, surprising things, things like nothing maybe you've ever seen before, anything like it before in your own personal life. But we believe that these are actual, real events that happened in time and space in history, that they're recorded by eyewitnesses who were actually there or, or written down by these people who were very close to the eyewitnesses uh, before they died. And so we're going to look at these, these miracles. Now, <clears throat> that raises the first question, are, are the, are miracles even possible in our scientific age that we live in, our rational age, we, we think is if even possible for a miracle, isn't a miracle a violation of the laws of nature? Well, we don't have time to explore all the philosophical aspects of that. There's some things at PursueGod.org that, that address some questions like that. But for today, I would just simply say that if we live in a universe with God in it, who created everything, then we live in a universe where miracles are possible. Now, if there's no higher power, then there's no miracles. But if you accept the premise that God at least could exist, possibly, then there should be no reason to object intellectually to at least the possibility that miracles can take place. Now, before we get any farther into that, I want to give you a working definition of miracles. This is what we're going to be coming back to throughout the series, so you understand what it is that we're talking about. A miracle, we're saying, is a special work that God performs to reveal his power and his character so that we may believe in him. Okay? We're talking about a special work that God performs to reveal his power and his character so that we may believe in him. And in the book of John, we're going to find seven uh, miracles that Jesus performed. Now, he did a lot more than that in his life, and there, many of them are recorded in other uh, parts of the Bible. But John particularly chose seven of them the things that he was himself an eyewitness to, he chose seven of them for a particular purpose, and we see that purpose at the very end of his book. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So each of these seven miracles is called a sign. That's the language you use because a sign points to something. They point to the identity of Jesus. And as we go through this series, we're going to see each of the miracles shows us something unique and significant about who Jesus is. And in the end, John says he chose these particular seven ones to focus on for this purpose so that you might believe in Jesus as the Savior. And so if you pay careful attention over these next seven weeks, you may very well end up entrusting your life to Jesus because you're going to see his power and his compassion 
and how those intersect with our own deepest needs. But if, you, if you're reading these stories for maybe the 10th time or maybe the 100th time in these next few weeks, that's great because it's always good to get a fresh perspective on Jesus. We can never have enough interaction with Jesus. And so really, it's good to remember who he is. It's good to remember why we've trusted him in the past, right? And so every new problem, every new challenge, every new fear that you face becomes then a new opportunity to encounter Jesus and to come to him and to believe in him again and again and again. And so with that in mind, let's take a look at how uh, this first miracle of Jesus in John chapter 2, let's look at how it begins. The next day there was a wedding celebration at the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivity, so Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Okay, so you see the setting is at a wedding. Weddings are a great celebration in our culture for sure. We enjoy going to weddings and enjoy the celebration that is involved with that. But in the ancient Jewish cultures, weddings were huge. It was such a big thing. It was not only a social gathering and a celebration, but it always had religious significance and sacred significance as well. And so uh, a wedding could last a whole week. And everybody in the village would come. Relatives would come from out of town, and so it was this huge, week-long festival, a party. It took lots of preparations. It could be very, very costly, and just the preparation for an ancient Jewish wedding would be a great topic for a reality TV show, probably, you know? Um, that would be kind of funny. But at this particular wedding, something went really wrong. They ran out of wine. Now, to run out of supplies at a wedding in that culture was a huge embarrassment. It would have brought tremendous shame on that family in their village. And they got to, had to live in that village and, and they'd have to deal with that embarrassment and shame. But even today when something goes wrong at a wedding, right, it's a bad thing. It's a big deal, right? I remember one of the wedding I did when I was young, a long time ago, I was performing this wedding and um, this is before the era of text messaging. Yeah, huh. Yeah. The uh, piano player didn't show up. And so they're like wondering, so they're, so they're trying to call and they're, they're getting no answer. They call like 30 minutes. We have 30 minutes to go. We call 20 minutes to go. We're calling again. We got 10 minutes to go. We finally got a hold of the piano player. She forgot all about it. And she, she was coming from like a way across town. She finally got there like an hour late. And we all just were sitting around kind of waiting. We said, I told the bride and groom, okay, we can do this without music or we can wait. And they decided to wait. I remember a wedding that I was performing where we did the rehearsal Friday night for a Saturday wedding. The bride and groom showed up at the rehearsal and they had never thought or bothered to get a marriage license. So I thought, hmm, like what are we going to do with this? You know, we tried to figure that out. There, this one, I had a relative, a cousin, um, when she got married, she was married in a big Catholic wedding, a big Catholic church. And part of that was they would kneel down in front of everybody. They would kneel down right here, right in front of the altar. So, you know, they're kneeling there. We can see their back. And while they're kneeling there, the groom passed out. And it was a good thing he was kneeling down, right? Because his wife was a nurse, and she just kind of grabbed him behind and propped him up. 
And he finally came to in time to say, I do, you know. But one time, my favorite is one time, a pastor is a friend of mine. He referred to the bride by the wrong name. Not only that, you can you know what's coming, right? He referred to her by the name of the groom's ex. Okay, so in Jewish culture, back in Jesus' day, running out of wine was way worse than any of those things. Now, it was the groom and his family who were responsible to provide for every part of the wedding. And failure to supply all of the food and all the drink and everything else that people would, would need, that would bring, again, great shame and disgrace on your family. And in fact, the, the groom uh, who was supposed to supply the bride's relatives, if the groom did not supply all these things, the bride's relatives could bring a lawsuit over that. And you thought your in-laws were tough, Right? And so this is a terrible situation shaping up on that, on that wedding ce- celebration. It's not a, the way you want to start your married life together, right? <clears throat> so here's what happens. Mary, the mother of Jesus, she steps in. She approaches Jesus to help. Now, this was before Jesus had done anything public to become famous. This, he hadn't been doing miracles around or anything. This is, he was kind of uh, been going on, on the down low. At this point, but Mary turns to him to help because she knows that, he, that he's a special person. She knew even from before he was born that he was special. And by this time, we think that her husband Joseph has probably passed away. And so she'd been leaning on Jesus, who's now about age 30. She'd been leaning on him in his adult life as well. And so even though he hadn't done any miracles yet, Mary turns to him to help. But they had this very odd conversation together. So Mary doesn't really ask. She basically says, you can see it there, she says, um, hey, they have no more wine. Well, okay, okay, when, when mom speaks that way, you know, there's a tone of voice, right? There's a certain way that a mom can speak where you know that she is expecting you to do something about that, right? And when Jesus replies, he responds to her by, by saying, dear woman, it's not our problem. Dear woman, that's not a way that a son would typically talk to his mother in the ancient world. It was respectful, but a little distant. It's like if I said to my mom, thank you, Mrs. Anderson. Right? What's going on with that? And so what's happening here is Mary's expecting Jesus to do something because she's his mom. Right? And so, so she talks to him that way, but... In having this expectation, what really happens here is that she has gone beyond her authority in his life now, not just because he's grown up, but something has changed in Jesus. Something's about to happen with Jesus. He's no longer just a carpenter. He is now taking hold of his role as God's promised Messiah. He, he's now on a mission from the Father, and so Mary's going to have to learn to respond differently to him now. He's not just her son. He's now her, also her Messiah and her Lord. And he must now answer to God's purpose for his life. And the, so there's an important lesson for us there as well. That we can't expect Jesus to act on our terms or on our timeline. We can't come to God like he's some kind of cosmic vending machine and you just decide what you want and out it comes. No, he's in charge. He's God, not us. He gets to call the shots. Now, he invites us to ask him for help. We can make very specific requests of him, but we must never demand anything from God on our terms. 
We should always turn to God with our problems, with our questions, with our concerns and our requests, but we should never expect God to do our bidding, right? So Mary seems to have grasped this. In verse 5, she says that uh, she tells the servants to do whatever Jesus asks them to do. And so this is really a response that seems to be grounded in faith because she isn't telling Jesus what to do now. Instead, she's following his leading. She's trusting in what his decision will be. She believes that Jesus has the power to make things right, but he's going to do it in his own way. And so this is really the response of faith and trust in God that is informative to us. Right? That we don't come to God expecting him to jump when we have a request, we don't come to God to bargain terms and conditions that we like or that we want, but instead we come to God recognizing that we're in absolute need of Him and that He's in absolute charge and that He knows best and then we're going to trust Him and we'll trust Him to act. And when that happens, then we learn another very important lesson in our, inner, in our relationship with Jesus, we see what he actually does in this situation, and this becomes informative to us as well. Let's take a look. The next verses. <clears throat> Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing, and each one could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. And when the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some of it out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. And when the master of ceremonies tasted the water, that was now wine, by the way, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over and said, a host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine, but you have kept the best until now. Now as we unpack this a little bit, what I want you to, under, to, to understand is that Jesus can and will do more than you can imagine. I want you to understand that what this shows us about why he has come and how he acts, and what that means for us. So Jesus decides now is the time to to take action. Now is the time to reveal to his disciples and to his mother uh, who he really is and what he's come to do. So he tells them to get these six stone jars of water, fill them up, Now, these were jars that were kept for ceremonial cleansing. This was not drinking water. Okay, this ceremonial cleansing, there were certain washings that you had to do. Your hands or certain utensils for any kind of religious ceremony in that day. And part of that then would apply to the wedding as well. There are certain things you had to to wash and and ceremonially uh, for the wedding. And that leads us to... some important background information. I want you to understand that that whole ceremonial cleansing that was attached to the wedding ceremony was really part of a much larger system of religious rituals and rules that had grown up in ancient Judaism. And at that time in history, Judaism was plagued by all of this series of religious rituals that didn't have their source in the Bible, but they came from the teachings of Religious leaders from the past, they became traditions handed down from past religious leaders, not from Scripture. And this whole series of man-made laws developed as a way to determine whether you were accepted by God or not. So if you really wanted to be accepted by God, 
and you had to jump through these, these religious hoops. You had to check all the boxes on the list. You had to perform all of these religious rituals, and if you didn't perform them or if you didn't keep up on them, then you were considered in that culture to be unclean or impure. In other words, you were considered as not having any right to approach God. You've been the outside with God. And to be honest, you know, you look around, there's a lot of people in our culture and our society today who approach God the same way. In fact, all around the world. People who are trying to get worthy before God by following a bunch of man-made religious rules that God never prescribed, but some human leader in the past somewhere did. And because, you know, it's so easy, people create all kinds of lists, all kinds of um, check checklists and regulations that we have to cover that if you follow them, then that's how you know you're accepted by God. That's, how, that's what people think. Today is, as in the past. And maybe you've experienced that kind of thing before. Maybe you've been a part of a church that had that approach at some point in your life. Or maybe you tried being that kind of religious person and you, and you, and you tried to fulfill all the right requirements and do all the right things and, and doing it just in the right way thinking it would make you right with God. But you know what? If you've been on that train, you realize that that only leads to disappointment. A disappointment with myself because I can't make it happen. I can't fulfill all the rules. I can't keep it going. I, I just can't live up to that standard. And so I get disappointed with myself and I also get disappointed with God because God seems so distant and so hard to get to know. I've got to, to navigate through all this complicated religious system in order to know God and, and that's discouraging and disappointing. Or maybe you've been turned off of God because of religious people like that. And some of you have avoided church for years because you get tired of those religious people and their rules. And so you've grown disappointed in God and in the church because it seemed like it was all about living up to the rules and following somebody's standards. And it's all external. And listen, if that's you, I want you to notice something the shocking that Jesus does in this, in this episode. And I want to talk with you for a minute about the meaning of what he did. So Jesus tells the servants to scoop some of the water out of those stone jars, get a cup or a ladle or something, scoop out this water, and take it to the master of ceremonies of the banquet. Now that's kind of like the wedding planner. He's this the one who's got like everything going, you know, and it's the one who's probably just got done talking to the groom about, hey buddy, did you realize you're about out of wine, you know? So he says, take some of this over to the master of ceremonies, to the banquet master, And they did that, and and when he tasted the water that was now actually wine, he was totally amazed. He didn't know it was water before. He was just amazed that now there was all this wine that he didn't even know about. And he's totally amazed because it's the best that had been served that whole night long. Because see, the smart play was to serve the best at the first and then start to substitute it with cheaper wine later on as people had more to drink, you know, they wouldn't be able to tell the difference and they probably wouldn't care at that point, right? And, and so the thing was that this wine was the best that they had in that whole wedding feast. Now, another surprising thing about the miracle was the abundance of it. If you think about, do the math, you know, you have these six jars, it says they're 20 to 30 gallons each, <clears throat> let's say 25 gallons And Jesus provides so abundantly, fills them all up, that would be about 750 bottles of wine. Okay, and it's not the 
the $8 bottle of wine. We just saw it's the $75 bottle of wine. Now, Jesus wasn't encouraging everybody to get drunk. That's not the point of the abundance here. But he's showing that the, 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 the abundant new life that God has in mind for us has come. And so through this miracle, Jesus is communicating something. There's something going on. Why did he choose to turn water to wine? Why was that the miracle? Think about it for a minute. He's communicating that he has come to bring us abundance. He's come to bring us joy. See, because in the Bible, wine often represents joy and gladness. Psalm 104 <clears throat> talks about how God provides for his whole creation, for the animal life and the, and the flora fauna. He provides grass and he provides crops and food and all the rest for his creation. And in verse 15, it talks about how God gives wine that gladdens the human heart, wine to make them glad, olive oil to soothe their skin, bread to give them strength. So all the things that God provides have their function, their meaning. And, and so wine became a symbol of joy and gladness. So in his very first miracle, what's Jesus saying to the world? He's saying to the world, I have come, I've come to bring joy, abundant, overflowing joy. And that's what Jesus offers us today. He offers us joy. See, he covered the shame of the bridegroom who didn't have enough wine. And he replaced that shame with joy. And that's what he wants to do in our lives, to bring everlasting gladness that doesn't depend on how worthy you are, that doesn't depend on whether you've done all the rituals or not, a joy that can never be taken away. And when you think about this, this is so radical. This is extremely radical compared to the religion perspective. To realize that a life of following God is actually a life of joy. To so many people, your only experience of the life of following God is a life of burden, a life of failure. But to realize when Jesus comes, he says this life is a life of joy. Look what it says in Psalm 16. He says, you make known to me the path of life and you will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. He says, this is the life of following God. It's a life that's worth living to the fullness. <clears throat> now, he's not saying that it's a life that's always easy or the circumstances are always comfortable. The Bible never promises that. But nevertheless, there's a joy in God's presence that pushes out shame and condemnation, and it's a joy that doesn't depend on having happy circumstances in order to experience it. It's experiencing the eternal pleasure of God that he has in store for us, but not waiting till eternity to have it, but beginning to have a taste of it and an experience of it here and now in this life because of Jesus, because of who he is. And all of this is anticipated by that very first miracle. It totally changes how we think about our relationship with God. Now, even though the, the first miracle was public, it happened in a public place, not a lot of people really knew what happened. Not a, not, a, not a lot of people really understood because they didn't know where this wine came from. They didn't see Jesus. You know, he didn't like hold up. Remember those chemistry experiments that your, that your chemistry teacher did and he puts the, the one thing in the thin, it turns from clear to, to red, right? Nobody saw that happen. But Jesus' disciples saw it. 
and they knew, and it made a really big impact on them, as you can see in the last verse here, in verse 11. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. For those who saw Jesus do that, it revealed a little bit of a glimpse of his glory, a little bit of a glimpse of, of who he really was. Now, what does that mean when they says that they that they saw his glory, they revealed it there? The glory, <clears throat> the glory there is the demonstration of the beauty of God's perfection. It's the spotlight shining on God. And so a lot of times glory is seen in the Bible as a light. It's the revelation of the uniqueness and the surpassing, like the higher, the height of God above anything and everyone else. And so the disciples are getting this picture of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And so they realize that Jesus is not like anyone else, that Jesus reflects God himself. He's a class by himself. And so the miracle wasn't simply this, this huge display of power that was meant to impress all the masses, because again, the masses didn't even see it happen. But what this shows is that each of Jesus' miracles reveals something deeper about him. They reveal these deeper realities about us and about him that you need faith to be able to see. So the point wasn't just the miracle. The point was the glory behind the miracle, what the miracle could reveal about Jesus. Now I want you also to think about what else was revealed about Jesus when he turned uh, those, that water into wine. I think what he was doing, he was telling everybody that that old system of religion was done. That things are different now. That this is how you really approach God. That old system that they had developed, the traditions of men, that that was never really valid in the first place. That was never really an authentic way to know God to begin with. But that old order that is represented by those ceremonial jars is now over. So here's the wine, it's gladness. It's joy. Here's the water. It's ritual and religion. He's saying, we're going to do this one now. Something new is happening. He opens up this whole new way to God that goes through him that's by faith. So it really was a time to party. It really was another great reason why he did it there in that case because it, it really was worthy of celebration what he was doing. See, do you realize when the Old Testament spoke about the Messiah who was to come, Nobody knew it was Jesus till he came. But when they spoke in advance about this Messiah who was to come, it promised that his coming would be like an abundance of wine, like an abundance of joy. And so what does Jesus do for his very first miracle? He turns the water into wine. And in doing so, Jesus is telling us he doesn't want you. He doesn't expect you to follow that old order of things. He doesn't expect you to believe in some system of religion or to follow a church itself. He wants you to believe in him and come to the Father through him. And he's the way to God. He's the source. And the rest of his life and his death and his resurrection, all of that explains how that is possible. And it's all cause for great celebration. And so our response should be the same as those very first disciples. They believed in him. Our response when we see Jesus revealed a little bit like this is, is to believe in him. Now that means that you recognize that he's the Messiah. 
Now, or what we would, in our language today, we would say that he's the Savior. But it's more than just acknowledging that as a fact. It's more than just saying, yes, I, yes, I can believe that that's true. But it means also that you put your absolute trust in him and in him alone to be right with God, trusting that Jesus is enough even without the religion thrown in. That Jesus is enough. Trusting him for your salvation, trusting him for the forgiveness of your sins, recognizing that you need saving, that you can't make it happen by yourself. None of us can. That no religious or moral work can make us right with God. That a church or a set of rituals is not the answer to our deepest dilemma. So we trust that Jesus alone can make us right with God. If you're already a Christian, then it also involves then trusting in God to give you that life of joy that Jesus promises. Are you experiencing that? That joyful life that comes from being close with God? Have you been experiencing that? Do you receive that, that pleasure that comes from being in step with God, of being a child of God? Have you experienced that? You know, in this, in this whole series, we're going to, in each of the seven miracles, we're going to learn something new about Jesus, something unique about Jesus. We're going to get to know him so much better. And as, as you get close to him, as you get to know him, then you're going to begin to experience all the things that we're talking about today. Your experience will change as you're open to letting him work in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you sent your son into the world. Thank you so much that he came to bring joy, God. We need joy. It's so easy to be weighed down by the burden of obligations that the world puts on us, that we put on ourselves, that other people put on us, that religion tries to put on us. Father, I pray that we would step into the joy of celebrating your abundance and your goodness, your unconditional love, that you'd fill our lives with joy as we get closer to Jesus, as we come to him, you get to know him and we trust more and more fully in him that you'd fill our lives with this joy. A joy that we can't manufacture. A joy that doesn't ever get taken away. A joy that comes from your work in us. May we each experience that today as we come face to face with you, as we come to grips with your power and your work in our lives. Father, you know the things in our lives that we need a miracle. That we need you to to turn something into something else. We need you to turn despair into hope, to turn sin into redemption. We need you to turn weakness into strength. So we come to you. Help us to see you and to trust you today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.